This episode is brought to you by Tuk Tuk Box, sharing Southeast Asian stories at your doorstep. Learn more at tuktukbox.com. That's T-U-K-T-U-K-Box.com. This week on Meet and Three, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they, they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food. And so it can operate as a bridge, um, not just between neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your lone co-host this week, Ethan Frisch, and my guest is Alex Godin, founder of Lemon Tree. Alex, thanks for joining me. Oh my God, thank you for being here. And I have to say, I'm a little bit starstruck. Uh, it's just, <laughs> I uh, go so hard on the burlap and barrel spices. And like, honestly, when that when that box shows up, it's it's the best time of the month. And like, just feel it's an honor to speak to you. So feeling really lucky. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and likewise, I think actually that's how we connected in the first place was uh, you had placed an order and I noticed the lemon tree URL in your email address and looked it up and, and reached out. So it's it's nice to get to kind of close the loop here. <laughs> yeah. And I think I submitted a, like a tech support thing for oh. some weird bug <laughs> in your website. And so I think it's the first time I've ever sent a tech support email that ended with being interviewed on a podcast, but maybe not the last. That's, that's pretty standard in, in how I recruit podcast guests. <laughs> so uh, anybody who wants to be on the podcast, send me a tech support, point out an error on our website and I'll be your friend forever. Um, let's, let's dive into your career. You've done all kinds of things. They're all over the map and they're all really interesting and, and often connected to food. Um, uh, going back, I don't know how far you want to go back, but going back to sort of the beginning of that process, what, what got you interested in, in food and and what was sort of your first entrepreneurial project around it? Uh, I think that those are, t- are two very different questions. Fair enough. Um, uh, I guess I, food for me growing up, we ate dinner as a family every single night. And that was just sort of this, this point. And I, my parents would say, and I agree that I, I learned more at the dinner table uh, than I did in most days in school. And we would talk about the news. We would talk about uh, what we were going through, we would talk about science and how the world worked. And it was just this really wonderful moment of sort of connection and, um, I don't know, my, 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 my partner has come to, comes to dinner at my parents' house and she's like, oh my God, that's like, you guys have dinner and talk during dinner. Like it's a, uh, um, like it's a sport, like you, everyone's just talking over each other and it's alive and it's, uh, high energy and, and just really fun. Uh, and so there's really, for me, a sense of comfort in sitting around a table and eating food. And then I think the other side is that there's really also have from a young age experienced sort of the, that food is culture and that food is always that an adventure with food is not just delicious, but a way to understand something. And so, um, 
growing up, my family were big devotees of the Chowhound message boards when Chowhound looked like a like it was like yeah like uglier than GeoCities, and we would <laughs> <laughs> drive in the car to Queens to some uh, like restaurant that like uh, we still remember this re- wonderful restaurant in Queens, Tripify, uh, where you can go for delicious Thai food, and is now like three or four storefronts uh, and like a big place when we were go would be this tiny hole in the wall uh where you would just get the best papaya salads and um whole crispy fishes and water crystal it was incredible but it was also a way to sort of connect with people who had an totally different life experience than i did and so i guess uh that's like my early food experience and then i think from from an entrepreneurship perspective like i've always been um entrepreneurial and always starting various uh sort of adventures and and sort of side hustles and um when i was 17 uh one of those adventures and side hustles turned into a company that had nothing to do with food but was a really um just uh jumped headfirst into the world of entrepreneurship and haven't really uh left and and then a, a few years ago, you started Lemon Tree. Tell, tell us a little bit about Lemon Tree and, and what, what you set out to do initially and, and maybe how it's changed. We'll, we'll get into more of those details uh, you know, further, further down the line, but just an, an overview. For sure. So, so, so Lemon Tree connects hungry people with free food. And uh, we do that in a way that treats, uh, really values hospitality and treats everyone with respect. Um, and at the same time collects data to make the food system, emergency food system, uh, better and more user focused. So in practice, that means that we operate a text or phone helpline that anyone can contact to get access to emergency food, a soup kitchen, a food pantry, delivery, help with SNAP, those types of things, SNAP being food stamps. Uh, And along the way, really just make it such a priority to normalize uh, the struggles that folks are going with to see them and to recognize that they're completely human and there's nothing wrong with them. And we use every interaction as a way to collect data on the emergency food system and to understand, um, which parts of the system, which food pantries, which soup kitchens are shining stars and which ones might have more of a, uh, more, more to work on. And so seeing like, for example, I can tell you right now that there's six food pantries within walking distance and um, two or three of them have almost no weight. And then two or three of them are going to have an, a multi-hour long wait and can point you in the right direction based on the data that we've collected, which is sort of the first of its kind. And all that goes to solve sort of this crucial problem that there's more than a million hungry New Yorkers, but the majority of them will not access the thousand food pantries that our city that have food to feed them. And so we are, are working to solve that problem. And from the beginning, I've sort of focused on um, these core tenets of food access, but also bringing dignity and joy and quality to dinner time, sort of in the same way that I talked about growing up and uh, started actually as a service that sold meal kits, kind of like a blue apron for folks on food stamps. And then as the pandemic sort of took hold in New York City, we rapidly pivoted to a few different pandemic response things, one of which was this food helpline, which we now run. And I, I mean, I'd like to hear more about how, how you got started, but before we go there, could you talk a little bit more about the 
the system of free food distribution and food pantries in New York City and, and why, you know, why you might have a situation where there are uh, blocks apart food pantries that have no weight and food pantries that have multi-hour long weights? Yes. So I think to, to start, we have to think about the, the history of emergency food, which is um, not as old as you would think, uh, on the order of decades, um, I think, and I'm, I'm going to say it wrong, but on the order of decades old, not uh, older than that, and really started in the basements of churches. So a church congregation would raise some money, buy some food, give it away, raise a, or rescue some food and give it away. And over time, each of these sort of independent religious groups banded together into a nationwide network, uh, first banded together on the city level to create citywide food rescue organizations. And then those citywide food rescue organizations banded together to create Feeding America. Um, and so it's almost like uh, you have sort of have three layers. The first layer is sort of these distribution sites, which are often volunteer run, um, and uh, sort of open a few hours a week usually. So think of that as like the place that you would go to get food, whether that's sort of now a mutual aid group or a community fridge or uh, more traditionally a soup kitchen or a food pantry, often inside a church or inside some sort of other nonprofit building. Um, and then those folks are getting their food from food rescue organizations, food banks. And those in New York, you have uh, City Harvest and uh the food bank for New York City. And those folks are big, sort of really incredible logistics forces that are moving millions and millions and millions of pounds of food every single year and doing that uh, through by doing rescue and buying food on the, on the open market when it makes sense. And then those organizations are supported at a national level by Feeding America. And so what we see is that... Um, because sort of the end level food pantries are so come from this very grassroots place are often just run by a volunteer who's really just doing incredible work. There's so much difference between what each of different pantry experience is like. And so that, that's sort of your lay of the land. And there's, so there's a thousand of those grassroots food distribution sites at the same time. Um, for end users, we've done a ton of user research with folks and said, okay, like, it sounds like it's, you're really struggling. Um, have you thought about going to a food pantry? And folks will often say, well, that's not for me, right? And um, so part of our work, because there's so much, um, going to a food pantry is really, um, can be, uh, degrading for folks can feel like a loss can feel really hard and which is completely and totally understandable right because it's you can wait in line for a long time you may not want to be seen it can be it's really an emotionally difficult thing and so a lot of folks are sort of responding to experiences that are uneven where someone might go to a food pantry and have a not great experience right or they're not treated with respect other times they'll have one that's fantastic but sort of uh we treat sort of that stigma or don't treat me, we, we, we sort of hope to confront that stigma. And then I think the second piece for me is that figuring out how to go to a food pantry is in and of itself this huge, cha huge challenge. And so for us, like, it's this leap of faith, real, real leap to say, okay, I'm going to get help. I'm going to go get food. And then beyond that, there's this extra bonus thing of like, if you wanted, if you told me, if you asked me eight months ago where to go find food, 
I couldn't tell you the answer. I pull up Google and Google takes you to some pages that have maps on them, but the maps don't really tell you what hours the pantries are open and what the requirements are. So you've got a pantry that only serves people with names that start, last names that start with an A through an M on an odd numbered day. And that may not be available without calling them. And if they do call, they might not have the, um, they may not pick up their phone. And so we are really working to build uh, along with our partners in New York at Hunter College and then uh, in other cities uh, from scratch, a database of um, where to get food and uh, what the hours and requirements might be. Because it's so varied because the system is so uh, bottom up rather than top down. Yeah. There are 60,000 food pantries in the United States and no one can tell you the address and hours of all of them. Wow. So, I mean, is is the purpose of, of collecting that data, of making that list of food pantries, is that primarily to make it easier for people who need food to get to it? Or are there other upsides? Are there other advantages in, in building that network and, and creating that database? Um, I like to think of our work as having two levels. Level one is that we, uh, last month, we helped 500 people who probably wouldn't have gotten emergency food go get food, Right. And this matters because these are folks who are opening their fridge and there's just not enough to put dinner on the table, right? We do a user interview with a mom and we say, what did you have for dinner last night? And she'll say, I served my kids cereal and I didn't have anything. And that's because cereal was the only thing in her house, right? And that's horrifying to me. And so if we are able to help those folks get food, that's like this tremendous win that we get to have on a daily basis and uh, really... When I say we feel so grateful to the folks who are on the front lines answering those questions and um, and, and and working with with, with our cl- our users and our clients, um, uh, at level two is as we're collecting this data, we're building a data set not just of where are the food pantries, but what was the client experience like? Um, how was it? What did what did you what did you get? Uh, how long did you have to travel to get there? How long did you wait in line? Were you treated with respect? And all of a sudden, we're building a data set that we can share with end users that has never existed before, right? And so I'm an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for 10 years. And if I'm trying to optimize my business, the first thing I'm going to do is talk to users and collect data on what their, their experience is like. But the structure of the emergency food system has made that really, really hard because it's super anonymous. Someone waits in line, gets food, and leaves. And so we are able to say a week after you go, how was it? How was the food you got? How were you treated? What could have been better? And then we can build that feedback loop that I, as an entrepreneur, love having in order to make this product better and build that feedback loop for the folks that we partner with and the amazing emergency food services in in New York. And like want to be New York and nationwide, I want to be really clear that like these sites are a lifeline for so many people. And it's so magical to hear the quotes that we get back from the folks who go to these sites that have um, just had a tremendous experience. Yeah. Would, would you talk a little more about uh, what the experience is like for somebody picking up food at a, a food pantry for listeners who, who may not have been through that themselves? What, like, what, what kinds of questions are you asked? How, how does somebody decide whether you're eligible or, or what food you might be able to take home that day? Oh, it varies a lot by location, which is one of the reasons that our work is important. I think that at the end of the day, the common thing that happens is you go to a place and get food. 
most of most of the time that food is going to be unprepared food that's called a food pantry or it'll be prepared food that's sort of a soup kitchen community kitchen whatever you want to call it uh on the food pantry side uh there's been a big shift in the last 20 years away from here's a bag of food to here is an a grocery store-like experience where you get some number of points based on your family size and get to pick what you're actually going to get use, right? Which is a better experience for clients and a, a less wasteful experience for the pantries. Now, a pandemic, the pandemic has really made it harder for those types of things. So most of the time, most places are giving away bags of food. So, uh, and I think we'll start to see that roll back, but your sort of typical experience is, uh, if you're a parent, you're running out of food or not a parent, you're, you're running out of food. Uh, and by the way, biggest driver of this is that we think about food stamps as the answer to hunger. The average food stamp budget is about $4 a day per person. Uh, actually no, the maximum food stamp is about $4 a day per person. And so like, that's not enough to have enough food for a month. And so that's why we have millions and millions of people going hungry. So Tangent, those folks go to the pantry. You'll usually have to wait in some sort of line. You get there, you get your food, you go home. Uh, some sites, some pantries are now offering and uh, reservations. So you can make a reservation. You won't have to wait in as long of a line. Um, some pantries have sort of requirements around you need to live in this zip code or you need to have this last name and you need to come this many times. Um, but those all vary from pantry to pantry. And so I think I, I would start with um, the sort of core experience is you're hungry, you need food, you go to this place, you get food. And, um, wh what are your, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the community fridges that have popped up around the city over the last year? Uh, my colleague Kasumi is, spends all of her day, her day job is helping people find food and, and, and building out our incredible, uh, systems and, and, and just doing so many wonderful things. And then her night job, her passion is, 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 is doing community fridge work. And I think it's just so cool to see the way that communities have stepped up, that they have, um, uh, and, and, and by the way, just as context for folks who are listening, a community fridge is exactly what it sounds like. It's a fridge on a street corner plugged in with an electrical cord in this like kind of janky, but also incredibly wonderful way to usually like someone's apartment or something, uh, with free food in it, with no judgment, no, um, uh, nothing. Uh, and you just walk up and you take food and there are volunteers who restock it. I think that, I am blown away by the community energy of community fridges. I am blown away by the uh, dignity and uh, quality of experience for the end users. And I think that it is incredible and onto something. I think for me, I am excited to see how the community fridges deal with the challenges of really scaling the model. And that at the end of the day, a food pantry is giving away pallets and pallets and pallets and pallets of food every hour. And a community fridge can only fit so much food. And so from a logistics and scale perspective, I think I'm really curious to see what community fridges do. But at the same time, I'm totally in awe of what they've done so far and of the way that communities have just stepped up and said, you know what, this is an important thing and I'm going to do it. And there's no uh, centralized body. It's like mostly just these wonderful group chats of neighbors who care. Yeah, I mean... Hearing, hearing you talk through all of these options and the, the you know, the pros and cons, uh, I mean, isn't, isn't to some extent, isn't all of this 
uh, just covering up for a, a policy failure, for a failure of government to provide, I mean, the most essential thing for for citizens? Is there is there a policy solution that has been attempted and failed, or 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 is it should we just not uh, wait for government to come to the rescue at all? I think that in a perfect world, rich people would pay more taxes and uh, people wouldn't go hungry. I don't know how to get towards that world. I am not a politician. I am not a lobbyist. I am a 27-year-old sitting in front of an iMac in a one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. And so uh, my personal approach is to just do what I can to help. And so seeing this problem that is so solvable of there's hungry people and there's free food and we need to connect the hungry people with the free food uh, just feels like such a juicy and wonderful thing and uh, something worth tackling. And so, uh, sorry, it's not, it's juicy and wonderful if you can solve it, right? There's this magic moment of the person who's hungry and we get them free food. And so I guess for me, yes, I the policy is completely fucked. And I don't know about the language. I'm sorry, but like, uh, <laughs> it's fine. Go for uh, it. Uh, like the policy sucks. And so for us, it's like, how do we, um, what can we do to solve a problem today? And then how can we use the problems we're solving today to make tomorrow's, uh, tomorrow less bad? Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Tuk Tuk Box, a Southeast Asian woman-founded company with a mission to share Southeast Asian culture and experiences through food. They offer curated subscription boxes and products, partnering with vetted small business owners and local farmers from Southeast Asian communities. Their signature Southeast snack box is available in three funky levels, perfect for all palates. You can either purchase a one-time box or sign up for a monthly subscription. Tuk Tuk Box is sharing Southeast Asian stories at your doorstep. Get your first box at tuktukbox.com. That's T-U-K-T-U-K-Box.com. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And my guest this week is Alex Godin of Lemon Tree. Um, Alex, I, I realized at the top of the interview, we didn't really get into how you started Lemon Tree, what, what, where the motivation came from or, or the, the initial kernel of the idea. Uh, could, you, could you tell us that story? Sure. So I've been an entrepreneur for as long as I can remember and like always throughout school, always had side hustles where I would, I don't know, sell gum to kids or sell T-shirts or whatever. And um when I was 17, started my first startup and it was like your typical venture capital uh, startup. We raised money. We were building this enterprise software tool. We sold it to meetup.com and I worked there for a while. Um, and two things happened. The first was while I was at meetup, I realized that food was really important to me. Um, I had this moment where I stopped being super focused on my startup and I had all this free time but I didn't have any friends. And so I hosted 40 dinner parties in one year with my amazing roommate, Wiley. Wow. And the two of us started the year not knowing anyone. And by the end of the year, knew a lot of people, right? And started the year not being that good a cook. And by the end of the year, I think I'm a pretty good cook, right? And so 
I guess um, I discovered how much I love food and the power of food to bring people together. And then I found myself with some free time on my hands in November of 2016. Yeah, right when Trump won. And I don't know if you remember, but that was a pretty dark time for me personally. And I have to imagine that your typical Heritage Radio uh, listener also probably didn't feel great that November. Yeah. Uh, and I was in a, a unique place where I had free time on my hands and was trying to think about what to do next. And so I said, what if we organized a telethon to raise money for the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and Earth Justice and did it on Facebook Live? So we were, um, we'd go live uh, to a bunch of people and the celebrities would uh, tell them to go donate to these organizations during Trump's inauguration. And uh, in November, I didn't know any celebrities, but I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll figure it out. And uh, by the end of December, it was looking pretty dark. We had two celebrities signed up for our celebrity telethon. And uh, suddenly things came together. And by January 20th, Inauguration Day, um, there were 65 celebrities, everyone from Herbie Han Hancock to Jane Fonda to Judd Apatow. And uh, we had we went live to 10 million people and raised $250,000. Wow. But I looked around and there were 25 people on set and none of us were making a penny. And we had just done this really powerful, cool thing. And it had felt like just like starting a company and all the parts I liked most about starting a company, which was like um, uh, the building something from nothing, the... Uh, teamwork, the camaraderie, the quick problem solving, right? The middle of the night, like, oh God, we need to have this fixed tomorrow. What are we going to do? And so I said, well, how can I just start a company that helps people, right? And that's where WebEntry came from. And that's what I think we are, is we're a startup that helps people. Um, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, which means that instead of having investors, we have donors. But really, I think of it just like having investors, because at the end of the the day, the people who are writing us checks are doing it because they're investing in a form of leverage for philanthropy. They say, you know what, this could be higher leverage than putting X, X dollars elsewhere. And that's the same way that a venture investor thinks about a startup is, well, this dollar is probably going to go farther with this company than that company. And so hope uh, I feel honored to get to do that every single day. I mean, uh, beyond that kind of technical distinction, the 501c3 or the investor versus donor question, what are some of the other differences that you've encountered in, in building a, a nonprofit uh, company or, or business as opposed to, to your, your previous projects? Or, or, or even sort of in, in the broader understanding of a, a social enterprise <laughs> and how that might be differently oriented than a, a venture-backed software company? Uh, it's really fun to get to help people. Uh, I get to work with really smart people who have their heart in the right place, right? No one is coming to Lemon Tree because this is going to be their big payday, right? Like <laughs> uh, everyone who works for us is paid really competitively market rate, but no one gets stock options because it's a nonprofit. And the type of people I work with, I think are the best people in the world. And uh, I think it's really rewarding to get to work around food. We are all food people. We share pictures. We talk about recipes and... Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess does that does that answer that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I mean, you know, we, we have a lot of listeners who are early stage entrepreneurs themselves, or are uh, thinking about entrepreneurial ideas and, and trying to figure out how to pursue them. And, and this is a question that I think comes up periodically, is especially for somebody who's, who's trying to 
have a social impact or, or make a, a change, whether to build it, you know, as you've done Lemon Tree as a nonprofit 501c3 or build it as a for-profit social enterprise. And I think there are pros and cons in, in both directions, but always interesting to hear how somebody made that decision. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, there were a lot of reasons to become a nonprofit early on that had to do with our earlier model that made it make more sense. I think at the end of the day, raising money for nonprofits is easier than everyone tells you and is a huge pain. In, and also coming from an incredibly privileged background where I have a network of high net worth folks who I can reach out to more easily than most. Um, but at the end of the day, I think nonprofit fundraising is easier than everyone says and still insanely, insanely hard. And uh, I think uh, feel grateful for models like um, uh, Scott Harrison at Charity Water and my friend Rohan at Upsolve and uh, Nancy Lublin, who started Crisis Text Line, uh, who have really sort of laid the groundwork for uh, these sort of high growth, sort of technical focused nonprofits and fundraising for them. At the same time, I, the friends I have who have raised seed rounds, it just sounds so much easier than the nonprofit fundraising thing. And I'm a little <laughs> jealous. So I, I, I don't have a good answer to either, but uh, that, that, that's where I am. Yeah. But it's also always, it's always easier for other people because you don't have to live their life. I also wanted to circle back to something that you had mentioned earlier, very briefly uh, in the conversation about uh, dignity and free food, which I think yeah. is something that often gets overlooked. Uh, yeah, would you, would you just talk more about that? Totally. Um, hmm. I think that there's so many conversations about how to get low-income folks to eat more healthily or to be more healthy, right? Uh, and how can we have cooking classes and community farms and, uh, videos and recipes and whatever, everyone has these classes and whatever. I think that it's like real, that's really important work. Right. But I think that, and when I started three lemon tree three years ago, that was really where I was, was like, okay, well, Low-income folks are more likely to have health issues, more likely to eat less healthy. Let's help low-income folks eat healthy food. And, and then as I sat down and looked at it, it felt to me like, for me personally, there's this even more juicy question of how do you use food as a vehicle for self-worth and dignity and... Uh, uh, worthiness and quality and connection and like everyone who's listening to this podcast has had incredible experiences around food that food is this conduit for joy whether it's like eating street food in bangkok or uh a five-star restaurant experience in new york city both are these magical things or just sharing a pot of beans that i made on the stove with some rancho gordo beans and burlap and barrel spices and uh having a a meal with friends. All of those are special experiences, but food can also be like this real um, conduit for pain, right? I, I still remember like like the saddest meals in my life, which for some reason always involved a McDonald's filet o fish. Um, and uh, I guess the thing that I am so interested in is how can we create more moments of joy around food and less moments of pain? And I think that that starts from treating people with respect when it comes to food, telling them that whatever they're doing is okay and normal and never talking down to people around food. 
and so that's that, that's I think just so important to me and, and and really just feels like the the heart of what we do right at the end of the day we talk about oh we're connecting people to free food but really it's that Lisette and Penelope who are answering the text messages when someone texts 90847 are really starting trying to connect with folks and saying you know what, what do you like to eat or how are you doing how is your family and trying to emulate uh, we learn a lot from Danny Meyer and his work at um, Eden Square Hospitality and the ways that he has really tried to codify hospitality as an art and a way of making people feel good about around food and trying to bring that to folks who may never have had experiences uh, in a restaurant like that, but may have had that wonderful dinner with friends, right? And trying to bring more of those experiences because I think that when you feel better about eating food, you're more likely to eat healthy. You're more likely to feel good in other places in your life because food is fuel. I uh, I've, I just read two books uh, over the last few weeks, which which are so relevant to this conversation and, and really relevant to each other in ways that I wasn't expecting. There's a, a new book called Delicious by Rob Dunn and Monica Sanchez. Uh, Rob Dunn is a, a biologist and digs into sort of the evolutionary uh, development of our taste buds and our, what we find delicious and what we don't find delicious, which is fascinating. And then I, and then I read the Michael Moss book called hooked, which is about the fast food and processed food industry, uh, tapping into addictive substances and behaviors and marketing. Um, you know, the, these bigger conversations about why people make the food choices that they do. And, and all of, honestly, all of the moralizing that happens from people who are not put in that position, not making those same choices about the people who do make those choices, uh, when really it, it has, it is becoming clearer and clearer that these are systematic problems. They are often intentional situations that companies or, or individuals have constructed. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact that the fact that, I mean, dignity is not a part of the conversation because dignity isn't a part of the conversation of, of the food that people are eating today. If it's, if it's not healthy, if it's not, um, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but, uh, but I, I think, th- I think, I think what you're saying is spot on and, and is part of a bigger conversation that it feels like as a society, as a, uh, I don't know, a, a food world, a food scene, uh, we're only just arriving at those realizations, which we should have gotten to years ago. Totally. I think that there, there, there's like two things you point to. The first is like um, around the fast food stuff. I think that I have a fairly healthy diet. I'm basically vegetarian. I eat a ton of vegetables, but like also I eat pizza three to four times a week and I love it. And like, I think that a lot of the conversations around healthy eating get so pushed towards this is unhealthy and this is healthy and away from like, how do you create a balanced uh, diet that brings you joy and that brings joy, uh, that makes you feel good, right? And then I think on the fast food side, like, exactly, there's so much money and time that goes into marketing crappy food and almost no time that goes into marketing good food in a way that really speaks to people and isn't paternalistic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that connects good food to, to delicious flavors, to, to wonderful experiences, shared meals. Um, and, and that, that connection is, is often not clear or is often not, uh, explicit in, in the marketing of it. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, let's do a couple of rapid fire fun questions before we wrap up. Um, how's that sound? Love it. Let's do it. All right. Uh, I'm going to kick it off with the vegetable question. If you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be and why? If I was a vegetable, what vegetable would I be and why? So I started at, I would be a brassica, which is what I was telling you earlier, but I've changed my mind. I think that I would be a chicory from Campo Rosso Farm, uh, which sells at the Union Square Farmer's Market on Fridays, just because those vegetables are treated with so much love and they're so delicious and they're bitter and they're sweet. And I, I call them luxury lettuces. They're incredible. And I think that the balance of bitter and sweet is perfect. The care with which they are handled. I think that like, if I was a chicory, I would spend my entire life in a velvet bathrobe and it would be delightful. So I, I think that. <laughs> and and, and so your life. with a chicory. And your life dressed luxuriously in olive oil and vinegar and. and yeah, mustard probably and some crushed anchovies and, and silk chili. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. I love it. Campo Rosso is amazing. If anybody hasn't tried their their veggies, check them out at the Union Square Farmer's Market. The most elaborately colored uh, leafy greens you will ever see in your life. Um, all right, next question. Uh, desert Island Kitchen Tool. You're going to be stuck on a desert island. What do you bring with you? Desert Island Kitchen Tool. And like, I have to imagine, I'm not going to say something boring like pot, pan, knife, cutting board. Like, I assume I get those things. You, I think it, you get nothing. I mean, you can get as much as you want, but uh, what would be your number one thing? You know, chef's knife is, is the most common answer, but I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm going to bring a pot, a pan and a chef's knife. But the interesting thing I'm going to bring is my rice cooker because right. I've never once made rice on the stove that tasted good. And I usually cook beans in the rice cooker. And it's I, it's a total... Uh, sign of privilege that I've never had to learn how to cook rice on a stove, but I'm okay with it. And I like that my Zojirushi Fuzzy Logic rice cooker plays Mary Had a Little Lamb when the rice is ready. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, any Zojirushi <laughs> uh, kitchen appliance I'm in. Um, what's, uh, what are your thoughts on the Instapot? I own two Instant Pots and almost never use them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There, those are your thoughts on the Instant Pot. Got it. Um, uh, tell us about a sort of a, a normal breakfast or lunch growing up as a kid, something that, that, you know, a, a meal that would have been unremarkable to you. What, what did you eat? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question. Instead, I'm going to tell you about my breakfast hack, which is <laughs> that I take the highest fat Faye Greek yogurt that I can find. And I put Bob's red mill muesli on top. And that sounds like a gross breakfast. And so here's the hack. Number one, buy the darkest grade B East maple syrup, which I think they now call, grade a yeah, they, extra they, dark or whatever, because yeah. nothing is safe anymore. And now we're kind of standard and then take really expensive olive oil. I like to get mine from Gustiamo um, or fat gold and pour it on top. And I will tell you olive oil, maple syrup, muesli, Greek yogurt, game changer. That sounds pretty incredible. Um, I, I have to ask you, since you mentioned yogurt, which is probably my single favorite food, maybe even more than spices. Uh, have you been to Parrot Grocery in Astoria and, and Sunnyside? And have you had their goat yogurt, which is probably the, the best yogurt I've ever had in my life? I have not. It's called Parrot Grocery. Parrot Grocery. Yeah. It's a, um, so there's two locations in Queens, one in Sunnyside, one in Astoria. And it's a kind of Turkish, Middle Eastern, Russian, Caucasian market. Uh, and they make a goat yogurt, which is, which is like vanilla icing. It's, you, could, you can stand a spoon up in it. It's incredible stuff. All right, I'm going to go this weekend. 
<laughs> but no, I'm, I'm from terms of grocery stores, I'm exceptionally loyal to uh, to the Park Slope Food Co-op, but it sounds like it's not just a grocery, so I'm okay. Um, what uh, What's your favorite yogurt? Oh, I'm a, I have not gone as deep as you have uh faye or a labne but i have not i'm not i can't i'm not a, a yogurt purist such as yourself i'm clearly outgunned <laughs> uh, i've spent a lot of time with yogurt let me tell you um you know the entrepreneurial life i i think the first year of burlap and barrel n- not paying myself a salary i lived mostly on yogurt and scrambled eggs um, i'm just glad that you chose to sell something shelf stable and not yogurt because as someone who had to deal with refrigerated trucks Oh my God, you're so lucky. <laughs> my So my last company, I mean, 10, 10 years ago, and really in, in today's terms, it would have been a pop-up, although that's not how we were approaching it at the time, was an ice cream company. Um, yeah. And ice cream is the worst uh, the worst product to sell because it melts. Um, yeah. So uh, we were, right. It was very important uh, to have a shelf-stable product when we were thinking about starting Burlap and Barrel. Um, Alex, where can our listeners learn more about you, about Lemon Tree, follow your work, and and where? how do they get in touch with somebody if they need help finding food? Uh, if you need help finding food, go to foodhelpline.org or just text food to 90847. And foodhelpline.org has a ton more stuff on what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if you have anything you want to... Uh, talk shop about i can be found at alex at alexgodin.com g-o-d-i-n any uh, social media handles you want to plug if you follow me on twitter once a year i tweet something super self-promotional but that's it and so uh that my twitter handle i think uh is alex underscore godin let me just double check <laughs> yes it is that tells you i used to be addicted to twitter and i had to change my twitter password so i can't log in uh but uh, if you go to my um, uh, Twitter profile, that's uh, that's what that's what you'll find. All right, sounds good. Thanks to Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is Blind. Um, as always, you can reach us by email yfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You can reach Valerie via Instagram at Foodie in New York. And most of all, Alex, thanks for joining me. It was such a great conversation and, and congratulations on on uh, everything you've built and, and all the pivots you've made over the past year. Thank you. This was just a total treat. I really appreciate it. Talk to you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.